whenever we go about the design process, the first thing you need to understand is your target audience and what you're trying to accomplish with that target audience. Thanks for subscribing to the ZonCon podcast, the podcast all about Amazon conversations. These are the tips and tricks to become an Amazon millionaire. Here is your host, Andrew Erickson. He is all things Amazon, and so is this podcast. Let's have an Amazon conversation. Hey guys, welcome to the Zoncom podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited today. I get to interview Zach Leonard. He is the founder of Gemba, which is a design and production company. And so we're super excited to have him. Thanks, Zach. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and moved down to Austin here to get away from the cold. <laughs> I started the company a couple of years ago, really with the focus on supply chain transparency, helping businesses and entrepreneurs get a trusted source to help them with all the supply chain issues that come up, you know, making sure they don't have to stay up late at night and dealing with the with the culture differences between, you know, America or Europe and China, how they do business. And really since we've started that company, we've we kept on getting inquiries from our customers about, you know, do you do anything on the product innovation side of things? And since the business was pulled in that direction, we were able to find some awesome industrial designers and engineers and started to offer the soup to nuts version of what we do today, which is product innovation platform where we can help businesses and entrepreneurs get their ideas out onto paper and then finally into mass production. Nice. I love that. That's so cool. That's one thing I always harp on in this podcast. And I always tell people that I meet that product design and product is very, very important because we are a product-based business and it is what you are selling. <laughs> you are not selling advertising. You're not selling pretty pictures. You're not selling words on a page. I mean, in some ways you are, but really you're selling the physical product, right? And so I a thousand percent agree that product design is very, very important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, what we tend to see with the more sophisticated sellers is they're devoting a lot more time and energy towards the product innovation side of their business where they're investing in design, they're investing in molds, they're investing in, you know, differentiation for what they can offer to their customers. And I think all of the, you know, not as sophisticated sellers maybe doing six to seven figures want to get to that point. And, you know, in the past it's been troublesome and tough to do because there hasn't been an outlet that truly understands all of the objectives and all the key points of problem areas that can come with trying to do it alone. And so what Gemba has really tried to do and what we've tried to do here at Gemba is give everyone an opportunity, democratize that process so that it becomes very straightforward, it's very linear, and that pricing isn't going to deter away you from taking that next step into product innovation. Nice. I love that. So... I can describe a little bit later how I kind of go about my design process, but I can tell you a little story about a friend and how his design thing went down. And I'm curious what maybe you could tell like where he went wrong. This is kind of like a what not to do story. Uh, <laughs> sure. So I'm curious what well, you would advise his friend. And I, I know he listens to this. So uh, Kevin, <laughs> I won't say his last name, but Kevin, I know you're listening and we're going to tell your story if you don't mind. So he had this really cool idea for this plastic shelf thing. And mm -hmm. he fell in love with the idea. And he thought this is like the newest, greatest, best thing. And he saw this other product on Amazon that would kind of be the only one out there. And it was selling something like $20,000 a month revenue, right? Mm -hmm. Not profit, but revenue per month. And so, right. and so I told him, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fine. That's a good number. It's a good number. Yeah, sure. 
And so he started going in, he hired a couple of different designers. These guys are like uh, really top notch. They're just friends of ours, actually. They're top notch designers from big defense companies. And Mm -hmm. they built this like gorgeous, crazy down to the micro millimeter design. And they spent like four or five months in the design process, tweaking this, that, adding little hooks, adding little this and that. And then I told him, I was like, dude, I, I don't know, man, that, that seems like a lot of work. You're getting in pretty deep on a product. You've never actually done this Amazon thing. You're getting in pretty deep. Mm-hmm. And I said, careful, the design costs and everything. And so it was creeping up already into the low five figures in design costs before he'd even tested anything. And then he ended up getting quotes from like four different suppliers, one or two domestic and two or three in China. And he ended up getting quotes for something like $80,000 in mold fees because every Mm -hmm. little piece has to have a special mold, right? Right. And then he, even after the mold cost, his cost of goods sold were like $60. And this is an item he was trying to sell for like $50 to $100. So if your production cost costs $60, that just doesn't work. And he ended up scrapping the whole thing and it kind of set him back like six months. Yeah. What do you th- And also a lot of time and money and effort spent on it already before even anything even started. So what do you think about that story? Can you give him a little advice? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. So whenever we go about the design process, the first thing you need to understand is your target audience and what you're trying to accomplish with that target audience. So I think the process of what he did, which is looking at a product and doing some research is obviously a critical first step especially in the sense of Amazon sellers where you're not going to be able to like this friend of yours, Kevin kind of went through the process here of, you know, if you haven't done it on your own, there's a lot of missteps that can happen, especially in the research process where you get some false positives potentially on this. And if you're selling on Amazon, there are tools out there like Helium 10 or Jungle Scout or, you know, seller tools, whatever you want to use to try and verify what you're doing. But at the end of the day, when you start the design process, the first question you should be asking is, what's the goal of what I'm trying to create? Is it to make something that's better than what's already out there on the market? Is it to gain market share and white label it? Or is it to create something that's completely from scratch? Whenever you answer that question, you'll be able to understand how much you should be investing in design. So it sounds like there's a product already out there in the market and he was just trying to make it incrementally better. How was he going about finding that information, right? Was he looking at reviews? Was he just going off of a hunch? Again, these are things I don't know, but let the reviews be your guide. In my, that's how we operate as well. We take a look at the opportunities out there. We look customer reviews dictate how we help design as well, obviously, as the seller's input, because obviously they have to sell it. So that's kind of step one. Step two, make sure you're picking the right design firm. So again, I don't know who we worked with. But it sounds like they created something that was not attainable based on what his criteria was. So if you don't have that discussion up front of you know, what's the end price of what you're trying to do, are you trying to be mm. a premium product? Are you trying to be a competitive product from a pricing perspective? That's going to dictate what the bill materials and what you're actually going to make this product out of, as well as you know what the mold costs and tooling fees should be to make your product. So again, if you're if you have you know I want to make Nike shoes for twenty bucks or sell them for forty bucks. You know, you're going to probably use different materials than Nike would, or you aren't making a million pairs of these shoes, you're going to pay more. So, those are the types of things that, if you don't have that design firm or engineering firm that actually understands how mass production works, that's where it can turn into these six figure projects where your output ends up being outside of the realm of possibility of what you had in mind. So, having that discussion up front is obviously an extremely important part of the process. So, just to expand on that, I like that. So, design firm 
should know not just how to make a 3D design for that special little hook or that special little clasp or whatever it is. But they should also kind of know if we do this, this makes our mold cost this, it makes our production cost this. So knowing more yep. like holistically about the whole thing, as opposed to just like, here's the really pretty CAD design, knowing holistically about the whole production process is pretty yep. important. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I can give you a firsthand example of this. So we have a customer who built one of their products, you know, it's in the travel space and they went to a design firm who promised, you know, I could make this product for this budget and it's going to be made for manufacturing and the whole nine yards, right? And they said, I have a relationship with the factory overseas. And as long as you go with that factory, I'll give you a heavy discount. A lot of design firms do that. Uh Um, So from a tooling perspective, to get 250 different molds and 250 different components put together into one would have cost them well into the six figures from just a mold and tooling perspective. When in reality, what they needed to do is get this made into three, four or five components, which would reduce their mold cost substantially. So the next step, once you've identified who your target audience is and what you want to make, the next step is to highly vet your designers. And again, I'm not bashing whoever they used. I'm not bashing anyone who's used a design firm in general, but you really need to understand what they've made before and if they're a right fit for your product. Because just like any factory, there's going to be a ton of industrial designers, a ton of people in Upwork that say, I can make whatever you want. I've made them plenty of times. And in reality, they haven't. And so you need to highly, highly vet these designers and make sure that they've made something similar to your products. The same process you go through when you're vetting a factory. If you go to a factory and say, can you make shoes? But you go to their factory and they're making belts, there's probably going to be a disconnect into what they can actually make. So it's the same exact mindset when you're going into the product development process. That's good. That's good to know. So it is important to go with kind of a more of a design firm as opposed to just some random consultant guy or and girl on Upwork or some other service like that. Yeah, I know. In this case, it was actually a friend who is in the defense company or defense world. Yeah. And so he's used to building really complicated, special radio tower things yeah. on, on top of really, uh, you know, mega million dollar military projects. And so he needs right. to have very, very particular designs and the price isn't so important. When you're selling $30 widgets and you need to get your costs in China down to like five bucks or less, it is really important. (laughs) You know the price. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And on top of that, a designer doesn't necessarily know how to engineer everything. So again, I don't know what the product was exactly, but design is just one part of the puzzle. The next step is, okay, let's say you have some sort of device that can shoot water like a Nerf gun or something like that. So there's how it's going to look, which is the design part of it. But then it's how is it going to work? How is everything going to be housed inside of the unit itself? So that is an engineering side of the equation. It's not the design side of the equation. So to do it correctly, when you have you know products like that, where it's not just aesthetics, it's also how is it going to function? You need to loop in an engineer. And most people don't understand. They're like, well, I got an industrial designer and they made all these designs and looks awesome and they put together some sort of CAD drawing. It's like, okay, what materials actually are going to be used to make this and how is it going to work? And that is not something that the average industrial designer can do. That is something that a mechanical engineer, if you're using electronics, an electrical engineer needs to be involved in and looped into the conversation so that you're getting something that's not only going to look awesome, but that's going to work how it's supposed to. Nice. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. Zach, do you have an example of like a very particular design that you've actually helped and actually going through instead of kind of like the theory, like you actually went down and read the reviews and tell us of kind of some of the changes you've made? You don't necessarily have to tell us the exact product you've made, but like maybe a few examples of the changes and how that whole system worked. Yeah. So a customer of ours came to us with a basic search term that they found 
on helium 10. Okay. And they found a similar product that had issues with the material that it was made out of. Like the reviews were positive for the most part, but the concern was that because it was a kid's product, that the material was too rough. And so what we did is we did a search on the market of similar products that use materials that could potentially be safer for kids and also what the regulations need to be to make sure that it was compliant, not only for you know mass production, but also to get imported into the United States. And so what we did is we did a scan through you know similar products, also other products that could be used in a similar manner and found a material that was much more kid-friendly and it had a higher potential to please their audience while also keeping their price target in mind. And so we looped in our industrial designer for the first part to get the design in place, helped create what it's going to look like, helped create the graphic design on how it's going to be branded, where the logo is going to be, really the entire design process. And then once we did that, we had our engineer who came in and really housed all of the different products that would go into the final product that was going to be sold. His philosophy is if you can find something that's off the shelf, that'll make the mold and tooling process a lot more straightforward, meaning you don't necessarily have to pay for them. You can use existing products. That's the best way to do it, especially in the Amazon world. Most people don't want to spend unnecessary costs on building and tooling for products that are similar, but maybe want to have some sort of incremental innovation on top of it. So from that perspective, he used some of the similar products, you know, source material components to make the final product. So it was functionally the same, but had a different aesthetic to it and also used a higher grade material that was already out there in the market. And now this product is out there selling and this customer is in the process of placing their almost their fourth or fifth PO for this product. So it's a pretty good product at the end of the day. Nice. That's awesome. That's a great story. So you basically changed yeah. the material type and made it more kid-friendly and your designers and your manufacturer was able to figure that out. And now it's a successful product. That's right. So if you go off the shelf, that, that's really good to start with off the shelf products. And especially if you're starting out with that, I always tell people, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like don't do too many tweaks at first. But once you start getting a little bit better at this, you start understanding the market a little better, understanding what people want better. I highly suggest you make tweaks like that. I think that's a perfect example of something you can tweak is the material type. Yep. I always tell people some of my favorite things to tweak. One thing that I had a lot of success with, this is kind of one of the things I focused on the first, well, I guess the first two years when I was trying to make new products and trying to make something different, is finding products that are slightly oversized. And oversized on Amazon is 18 by 14 inches. Mm-hmm. Anything that exceeds that dimension is oversized. And Amazon basically adds on extra three or four bucks to ship that product. Mm -hmm. If you can find a product that's slightly oversized and then redesign it so it's slightly undersized, so it's fitting instead of a box that's 17 by 13 inches, you can Mm -hmm. save that $4. You also might be saving $1 or $2 on material cost just because it's just smaller, right? And Mm -hmm. so if you imagine someone is selling something for $30 and you now can save $4 on shipping and let's say a dollar... I'll say a dollar to make it a nice round $5, a dollar on cost of material and $4 on shipping. You now save $5. The thing maybe is only two or three inches smaller, serves the same function, but this product is going to be five, it's going to cost you $5 less. Imagine if you came into the market with something that's two inches smaller, but still works exactly the same and you're $5 cheaper. You can kill it. Right. And that's, that's actually, that's totally right. Yep, exactly. And, and, 
basically three of my top 10 products are basically that. And so I, I, yeah. I love that. I love that strategy. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually have one top of mind that might be right up that alley. So uh, right now there are, and this kind of also takes into account a little bit more of the process that we go behind when we're looking at design. Cake stands, huge, huge right now, huge opportunity. If you look at Helium 10, historically they've been made out of ceramic or glass. Go on Etsy or Pinterest right now and look up cake stands. They're all made out of wood. Okay. So uh. you're, kind of, you're kind of looking at the future of how cake stands might be made. This is potentially an oversized product, but it could be a way that you could package it because it's made of wood and you could assemble it a certain way. It doesn't have to be molded all together like it is in glass. You could pop the top of the cake stand onto the cake stand. You'd be able to get that shipping scalability that you're talking about. And then also create something that has not already been out there in the market, which is a wooden cake stand. I mean, those are only in small batch quantities right now, obviously, because if you're buying them off Pinterest or Etsy, those are handmade. But you can go to somewhere like India where they're manufacturing at much lower MOQs than they are in China. And they also have great wood factories that would be willing to play ball with you in terms of the, the low MOQs and maybe the lower pricing. And you could have an awesome product there that is differentiated from what's out there on Amazon combining both the scalability from a shipping perspective and also incremental innovation based on what's already out there. So nice. I love that. Yeah. Looking at different material types, I think is, is a big killer. And I love Pinterest and Etsy. You can scroll around Etsy and find all sorts of fun designs and they're new. And I never believe in like wholesale ripping someone off, but you mm-hmm. can be heavily inspired by <laughs> the designs right. on Etsy. Right. No, but it's, it's a great way to at least get your, you know, the, the process of how to do product research and how to vet, you know, something's out there and how to find new opportunities is just to, you know, use those tools and use those different outlets to actually be sort of a vetting source for you. Like if there's a clear mismatch between what's out there in the market and what the trends are telling you, that's where the opportunity lies, right? And so if you're able to capitalize on that and get their market faster than anyone else, then you really have a shot at creating a home run product. And that's really what, what we do at Gemba is trying to expedite this process, make it a lot more transparent, a lot more affordable so that you can get products to market in as little as 100 days. You know, one thing I always tell people too is that the design process definitely takes longer and there's usually more, for, at least for us, and speaking from personal experience, it takes longer to do it. And there's usually more sample steps. You don't just get one sample. We get minimum of three samples because we have slight tweaks on this and that and the design didn't come out quite right or whatever it is. It does take longer. But for me, I found that the products that we spend time designing, it might take us six months to finish a design instead of just picking some random product off Alibaba and getting it in two months. And so you do add that extra, like you said, you said 100 days. And for us, that's very reasonable, maybe even longer than that is how we would do it at. And so it sounds like you're right. Maybe we should use you instead of our own our own <laughs> designers. Yeah, but, maybe, uh, maybe you should, Andrew. That'd be awesome. Yeah, we'd love to, maybe. We'd love to yeah, test this out with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're, the reason why we're able to do that is because we have the entire process already mapped out. And we also have the experts in place that can help do this. So you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to have disjointed between design and manufacturing or design engineering and manufacturing. It's all under the hood, under one umbrella, under one roof, as I like to say. And so you can have those conversations earlier on in the process of, hey, this is where I'm trying to make, this is the price target I'm trying to make. Here's the MOQ. Like, go, like while you're making the product, let's go find some factories that will do this product for you so you can cut down on that engineering or that price quoting time. And then 
again, you're, you're dealing with people who have actually made products in mass production before, which is a huge leg up on the average of trying to go to Upwork or, you know, find a friend or go to a design firm who doesn't necessarily have that expertise. Yep. You know, honestly, it does spend, it does take a little bit extra time to make a good product and make a good design and everything. But one thing I always tell people is, yeah, it did take us an extra two, three months because of our design process. But one thing that we do get is our product doesn't just last six months because we just are selling the same thing as everyone else. Our product is different and hopefully better, mm-hmm. but it's definitely different. And those products will last three or four years, maybe hopefully even longer. And that your ROI really comes back to you on the longevity of your product, not necessarily like how much mm-hmm. you're going to make in the next like six months, but how much you're going to make in the next five years. And so I found that right. like, new designs just last so much longer because you can't, you don't just have some rando go to with Alibaba or the Canton Fair and just pick up the same product that you did six months later. Right. They have to go through the design process and people don't want to do that. So always right. having a little bit, doing the thing that takes a little bit more time and effort to do sometimes can have huge rewards. I totally agree. And I think that's the key difference I see between you know someone on our side who's a six, seven figure seller versus the eight and nine figure seller is the ability to invest and stay with it for the product innovation process. They also are much more interested in going down the route of design or utility patents, which is something that again, if you mm. go down the product innovation route, you can do. You know, we have a network of IP attorneys that we work with that make the process pretty easy and, and straightforward and transparent believe in the same thing that we're trying to do, which is create some awesome products that get out to the market in as fast as possible for a better price. And yeah, I, I think, again, in my opinion, white labeling is coming to an end. And that's Super a hot... Agree. Yeah, it's a hot take, but it's one that I'll stand behind. I think the numbers are just trending in the wrong direction for the average white labeling Amazon seller. You're now competing with Chinese factories direct. They're able to cut the middleman out and offer better pricing and absorb that lower cost. 40% of Amazon sellers are now Chinese. So I would say that if you are serious about making this not just a secondary style of income, if you're trying to take this serious, product innovation is the best way and the best route to add stability to your brand and really make you stand out amongst the crowd. You know, we have a customer who had an awesome home run product and they started to get copycatted and they started to get replicas out there that were similar to what they were doing. Didn't have a patent. You know, they created this a long time ago, but they used us to first try and get better pricing with an existing factory. And we did, you know, we knocked off 20% just because we have a team over there that understands the culture gap. They help, you know, a lot of sellers do this in terms of knocking off costs, but that's only going to get you so far, right? There's only so far you can go on cost before a factory says, take a hike or someone competes with you with the exact same product that can beat your pricing and offer it on Amazon. So for them, they said, how can I make this home run product into a home run brand? Their product is in the health and wellness space. And they came to us with a couple of terms and said, okay, I want you to help me incrementally innovate on you know, a couple of these products that's going to take this product from, take my, my home run product brand into a real lifestyle brand that can be more diverse in the health and wellness space. And so we help them customize a couple of their products. One of them in particular is one of the very hot item right now. We help them create the packaging. We help them customize all the components that go into it. So it was a better battery, a better motor, a quieter motor, a lighter than what was already out there on the market. So taking all those components, all those reviews, 
saying, how can I make it better than what's already out there? They noticed that this product, no one else was selling it with a carrying case. So they wanted to make it a premium branded product, offer a carrying case that comes with it. So again, all these little things that make it stand out from what's going on already in the market. And then also help them diversify their existing brand to say, hey, I'm not just a home run product anymore. I'm offering my total brand to my customers and potential new customers. And then they can keep going deeper and deeper in that health and wellness space and continue to ride trends and become the first to market on new inventions that maybe haven't come out in the market because they develop these relationships with the factories who want them to sell their products for them. So again, all of this needs to be taken into account when you go into the product innovation process. It's not just a short-term, hey, it's going to cost you 50 grand to do this. This is a long-term decision where you're really making the change to your business to say, hey, I want to add revenue, I want to diversify, and I want to be able to have stability long-term, not just sell something that's already out there in the market. Now, we're super duper excited and we actually want to go with a new design and new sourcing and everything. Let's say we have a simple design. It's a, let's just use a fun example, like a toy or a garlic press. Everyone loves a garlic press, right? So I had this <laughs> new, oh my God, amazing idea for a garlic press. I want it to be special. I want to have a special hinge that does a thing that when you crush it down, it crushes with extra fast, I don't know, whatever, makes it extra crunchy, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a relatively minor thing. The design itself is effectively a lever and a crushing tool, I guess. Uh, But I want to make a slight tweak to it. Can you walk us through kind of like just ballpark? I know it's hard to kind of give estimate costs on something like that because you have to dive into it. But can you give us a like walkthrough of how much like a small tweak like that, how much the design cost, the sourcing and the mold and everything would cost on something like that? Yeah. That's a great question and one that I unfortunately can't give complete confidence behind because each different tweak is going to cause so many different chain reactions down the line. So what I can tell you is that there's a very distinct process that we follow to get all those questions answered. The first step is to get sketches of the product. So the goal for the sketching phase and what you should do with any designer or engineer that you work with is first get sketches of the concept based on the research that you've done. So if you find in this garlic press, for example, you find that the garlic presses that you've been using do a good job of grating it really fine, but you want to have more of a chopped garlic part of it. So you want to have a, Mm. let's just say you want to have a press that chunks it a little bit more so it's more of a chopped garlic versus a grated garlic. Let's just say that, for example. Good example. So, So what you'll need to do first is get sketches Basically, what you'll be doing is changing probably the faceplate on that. You won't necessarily be changing how the mechanism of it is chopped necessarily. So you'll change the faceplate of how it's, you know, maybe it's a crank where it's like every two millimeters, it stops, then you have to push it again. So it keeps chunking it, you know, something like that is just, I'm I'm making this up as we go, but you'd first want to get sketches of that, of how that's going to work. Now the changes from a a hinge that doesn't stop versus a hinge that stops. There's got to be something that stops it. So it's going to add some sort of component in there that's going to make it stop and then push the rest of the garlic forward, right? So that kind of mechanism is the, is what the tooling and the molding is going to be really based around. Everything else can be the same component as something that's already out there in the market. So those would be the two areas of expense that you're looking for. But again, the first thing you want to do is sketch those out. Once you come to your final sketch, you find something that you like. You can take those sketches to your friends. You can take it to you know, some of your audience that you trust and say, hey, what do you think of this idea? Just so you have some sort of verification, get some feedback, get that feedback, go through the final sketching process, come up with your final product, then start getting it made into the bill materials and the CAD drawing, 
once that's done, you can start price quoting out with factories. Always get competitive bids. Make sure you're signing NDAs with your factories so they aren't ripping you off or doing like that. Anything you know behind closed doors to try and copy your product. And then from there, you'll have a good understanding of what all this is going to cost. Now, again, I can't tell you, hey, that's going to be five grand, ten grand, twenty grand. It's going to depend on what your final sketch or what your final product looks like. But at the end of the day, that's the level of rigor that you should be going into with any product you try and develop yourself. Okay, good. Yeah, I like that. How we kind of semi-estimate it for ourselves, I guess, is you know the design part is it's all over the place because it can be a tiniest little tweak that requires a graphic artist to change and it costs five bucks on Fiverr.com. Right. Or it could be a full overhaul of kind of starting from scratch that takes engineer an entire day to do, right? So there, there's mm-hmm. different design tweaks and stuff. We found when we do a plastic mold, so anything made of wood basically doesn't have any mold cost because they use jigs, which is like kind of like a special way of setting the drill and the saw and other right. boring stuff like that. It's basically free. So wood's really easy. Anything with plastic, my rule of thumb, and I'm curious what you think, Zach, if I'm on point with this or not. Anything that's the size of your palm or smaller is about $5,000. Anything bigger than your hand could be, you know, 10,000 or more, depending on lots of little intricacies. Does that kind of make in the same ballpark as what you've seen? Yeah, I've I've done a little bit of it, so I'm not... It's really going (laughs) to depend on the complexity of how small that item is, right? Think of it from how they build the mold perspective. So the more detail that goes into the mold, the more expensive it's going to be because they have to physically make that somehow. So like, you know, if you have, let's just say it's like an Apple iWatch band, for example, that's a pretty straightforward... There's some notches in there. There's not much to it. That's easy. Whereas like, let's say you have a case that goes over your iWatch that's made out of plastic. Like think of all the grooves and holes and things that go into it to make it work as well as how is it going to clip on top of your iWatch. So those are the two different variations of something that's smaller than your hand, but can probably range in cost because they first they have to mold the item. Then they're going to have to punch out all the components that, so it can actually fit over your iWatch. So that's going to cost more money for the factory to do because it's more time and labor for them to actually create the final product for you. Yep, that makes sense. I know everything is is different and hard to do, right? So I'm curious, if somebody came to you and kind of said, here's my idea and had a couple of rough sketches, let's say they're literally sketches, they literally have pencil on paper and they've sketched mm-hmm. out a few things and they said that this thing's going to be an inch, this hook is going to be half an inch and I want the whole thing to be, you know, 16 inches long, some, something like mm-hmm. that. So few, you know, the ideas there, but there's no technical drawings, there's no mold, whatever, anything. Do you have a process to kind of step through that whole thing and give an estimate at the beginning before you go, you know, $40,000 into design, find out that it sucks? <laughs> we try and avoid that situation. But as far as the design cost, yes, you'll know all that up front, at least with us. So we'll get you from all the way from your sketcher or your napkin sketcher, is your head through the design process and you'll understand that cost up front. Once we get into the manufacturing side of things, it's really dictated by the factory. So it's hard for us to understand that. And the problem is you can't go to a factory with a unbaked design or manufacturing spec. Now that's where you get into trouble because every time you add changes, every time you add something new to the equation, that's where the cost can change dramatically. But what I would do to kind of gut check is take a look at an existing product that's out there in the market, see how much it's selling for and what the quantities you have to do. You can use Alibaba to do that. Although I don't recommend using that for finding your factory partners. 
But if you have sort of a price check, you can use either Helium 10 or Alibaba or something just to verify what a similar product is selling for. That should be a good goal. Okay, if I'm selling something that's better than what's out there in the market, I shouldn't expect to pay less than what's out there on the market necessarily. So if you use that as your ballpark, you know, again, I don't know what your margin goals are. If it's 25%, if it's 10%, if it's 50%, that's what you should have in mind is, okay, here's what I need to sell it for. Here's what the market's telling me I need to make it for. Now you can have that conversation with your designer, your engineer, and your factory all at the same time. Nice. I love that. So Zach, I'm curious. I should have asked you at the beginning, but Gemba, I think the name is fun, but I don't have no idea what it means. Can you tell the audience like what where that name come from? Yeah. So in Japanese, the manufacturing theory of Kaizen manufacturing, Gemba is the place where value is created on the manufacturing floor. So there's Uh. something called a Gemba walk where you're supposed to walk and have all these, you know, heady conversations about where what's going on over here and how the value is derived out of this part of the manufacturing floor. And so that's really what this company, the name was based on. Oh, nice. I like that. So it's a Japanese word meaning adding value during the manufacturing process. The place where value is created on the manufacturing floor. The place where value is created. Okay. That's a cool word. I like that. Nice. Yeah. And then I think I heard that there's like sort of a fun translation in Chinese as well, right? Yeah, it means let's do this or like let's go. Let's Just do go. it, right? But yeah, yeah, like rah rah. Yeah, like nice. Let's do this. <laughs> and then what's the what's the cheers in Chinese? Gambe, uh, gambe, gambe. Yeah, that yeah. Mean, does that mean bottoms that means, up that means or like cheers? Up. If you yeah, if you bottoms say gambe, up. <laughs> you better you better be ready to chug that glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually reminds me when I was visiting a factory a couple of months ago. I you know go out to dinner, of course, and a lot of the people who come to dinner are people who don't necessarily speak English, right? And they're yeah, Chinese speakers, and they'll say they're looking at you and they're trying to engage with you, but it's hard because neither one of I don't speak any Chinese. Except for ni hao, and they don't yeah. speak any English except for maybe hello. And so we say ni hao, hello, and that the conversation ends, right? And it's fun because we would they had started pouring drinks and they would start yelling, Gambe, Gambe, right? Yeah. Yeah, Gambe and bottoms up. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I understand what that means, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because yeah. they don't, it's also funny they have a little bit of a different drinking culture there. I don't think they drink wine as much as we do, or at least as much as my family does. And so they were pouring like basically shots, like one and a half ounce pours of wine and they yeah. were shooting wine. And I'm like, that's not how you do it, but okay, whatever. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. That, tonight, tonight, tonight's how, that's how we do it. So <laughs> were you drinking wine or Baijo? <laughs> that's the real question. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they're like, oh, you're from California. We should do wine. I'm like, eh, okay, yeah. yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baijo is the stuff that gets you in trouble. But no, I mean, I, I, I also, I think you're bringing up a good point though, which is, for anyone you know out there listening who has not visited your factory or doesn't regularly visit your factory, you definitely need to do that. I think it's one of the most important parts of being a seller of any good is valuing that side of the relationship for what it is. It is probably the second most important part of your business outside of your customers. So in our you know humble opinion, you really do need to treat it like that and making sure that you're treating them well. It's not just transactional. You know, the Chinese culture also really values face-to-face interaction and, and learning more about how your culture, learning more about you as a person. You know, so I, I would highly recommend going to visit your factory, developing the relationship. You know, Chinese New Year's coming up, get them a gift. You oh, know, yeah. something something that's that's small and nice. It doesn't have to be like a you know an iPad or something like that, but get them something just so they know that you value what they do. It goes a long way. Just like any person who works at any company 
going to want some sort of, you know, affirmation that they're doing a good job. This is a good way for you to show that you affirm that, you know, hey, you're doing a great job and I truly value what you're doing. Do you have any suggestions for a gift to give during Chinese New Year? Do I have any suggestions? You know, wine is a great gift. If your factory owner smokes, cigarettes are a great gift. It just depends. Do they have kids? Giving them kids something, the toys, whatever it is. If they like, you know, one of my factory owners loves basketball, so I get them like a Kobe Bryant jersey, you know, something nice. like that. Again, it's it just depends on what they like, like any gift. <laughs> so that's a great way to find out more about your factory owner or who you work with is ask them what they like and then get them a gift for what they like, you know? I completely agree with you that the factory and the relationship you have with your factory is is very important. And there's a huge human component to working with the factories. Believe it or not, it's not just some robot halfway across the world making everything for you. There are people over there doing this and you're interacting with people and just being a human to those people is is really important. And you can have some, you know, you can like measure ROI by getting better terms, by having blah, 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 whatever. But the big thing is that when you become, I consider our factory and our suppliers to be partners. We're all in it together. We are making a product and selling a product, right? Designing, making, delivering, mm-hmm. quality inspection, all these different things. We're all doing it together. And so I always try to approach everything as like a, a together thing. How can we make quality better? You obviously are there in the factory inspecting each unit one by one. How can I help in the partnership to do that, right? And then we're selling the product and we're, we're trying to find you know the best markets or the best whatever. We have to hit certain timelines. And how can you help me as a partner make that happen? And so, yes, exactly. I completely agree. You need to have, I always see it as a friendly relationship and not an adversarial mm-hmm. relationship with a partner. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly how it should be. You're doing it right. Yeah, good. That is fantastic. I love that you also care about the suppliers too. They're not not just a transaction. They're also humans. Yeah, so I'm I mean, curious. We, have a, we have a team in China, so it's it's extremely important. We have an office in China, a team in China, and going to visit them and getting on calls weekly, daily. It's it's all important. You know, it's it's harder when you have a obviously a cultural gap and you have a time difference. And but at the end of the day, we are we're all in this together. So especially when you're developing a product, so it is really important to continue to develop those relationships. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I'm curious, Zach, why do you do all this stuff? Like, why are you building this business? You're the founders. Why did you found this business <laughs> instead of just doing a nine to five at some other big company? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I originally saw an opportunity to help people. You know, there are entrepreneurs or small businesses that really have challenges with this. And I never saw it as an issue with culture or an issue with time or anything like that, I saw it as a challenge of misunderstanding and miscommunication. And so for me, what I would like to do, what I'm set out to do is to really bridge that gap so that you know whatever the political or geopolitical issues that are going on in the world, there's always a way to come together through business. And I think this is a great way to do that. Put all that political stuff aside and really just at the end of the day, create something awesome. And so that's why I do what I do. Yeah, that's great. Makes me happy to hear that kind of stuff for entrepreneurship, that it's not just about making lots of money. It's about helping people, it's providing value. The, the capitalism and entrepreneurship only works when you're providing value to other people. Right. So I think that's a perfect why. I approve. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. So since you're a business owner and you, you have all sorts of stuff going on, curious, what kind of books and websites and podcasts do you listen to that kind of help you along your journey? Yeah. One book that I think I would recommend to anyone out there just to give you 
again, a good sense of history in a very pragmatic way is the book called Sapiens. Have you heard of that book? Oh, I love that book. Love it. Yeah. I recommend that to anyone who's trying to build something because it gives you context of how, how humans were built, you know, how we've evolved as a species, how we've evolved every facet of history, how it all works. It puts it in a very like logical way. And so I think if you read that book in that mindset of like, okay, I'm, I'm here to learn on like why humans do what they do. It's a great way to help you understand how to build something awesome. Yes. And everyone should open their phones and add this to their wish list. This is Sapiens. The subtitle is A Brief History of Mankind by the guy's Israeli. So he has a kind of hard to pronounce name, Yuval Noah Harari. And it's a fantastic book. It's really pop came out, you know, four or five years ago. And it's all over Amazon and Audible and all those other places like that. I'll have a link in the show notes too, if you want to grab a hold of it. But I love that book. Like Zach said, it is written by, he's an anthropologist, right? By training. Yep. He's a PhD, I believe. And he talks about like, he, he kind of like looks at people as an anthropologist does as kind of studying them as if you were studying sort of like, I don't know, a, an ant colony, right? Like we're going to ant right. colony, you kind of see like how the ants move around and kind of just look at them. And he does that to people. In the very beginning, it's kind of like ho-hum, normal anthropology stuff where he talks about like, oh, well, you know, we went from tribes into chiefdoms and then into nations and then whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. But then he starts talking about these different concepts of like how money unites us. It's this, it's right. this like imaginary concept that we all yep. kind of pool together and, and use that as sort of a measurement of trust. Mm-hmm. and how nations are formed and how that's also an illusion. These are just yeah. different ways of organizing people through like these, you know, kind of like shared myth. There's no such thing as like the Canadian border, right? Like right. we just made that up. We just decided, right. oh, that's right here. Okay. It's all, it's all a myth, but we use these myths to kind of like build societies on. And like, it exactly. blew my mind when I read this book. Yeah. That's, that's kind of how I took it as well. It's like, we only call this thing a cheetah because we told you it was a cheetah. It's like, okay. Yep. Makes you think. <laughs> Have you read um, the sequel and and the third book in the series? The sequel not yet. Is, uh, Home not yes. Not yet. I need to though. Ah, yeah. That's the only like, book. Yeah. yeah. If it's anything like Sapiens. I definitely need to. Yes, Homo Deus is one of the only books I like better than Sapiens. It's like, wow. uh, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay, so Sapiens is going kind of like from a million years ago, kind of building up to today, right? And he kind of hints. He goes, "Well, you know, now we've gone from." A million years ago, and we've kind of discussed like how humans organize themselves until today. He kind of hints like, well, how might we change tomorrow and in a hundred right. years from now? So Sapiens is very much like this is kind of the science. This is what we have observed and seen. And then Homo Deus is a little more speculative. He goes, okay, now that you've read Sapiens, like let's talk about what might be in the future, how we That's might cool. change and how society and, and corporations might change in the coming uh, decade and century and millennia. And I'm like, oh man, I love that book. Awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to get on that really quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So can you leave us, Zach? What's one actual thing that Amazon sellers can go do today? Well, non-Gemba related, go build a relationship with your factory or inject quality control into your factory. You know, there's always the sense of trust, but you need to verify that your products are to your spec. So you know, some sort of, you know, I've found that you can equate a low star review to a value of about 500 bucks. And for that same price or even less, you can get a third-party inspector in there for to do a you know quality control inspection of your good. Baffles me that people don't do that. It's an easy 
insurance policy for you. You have actionable items you can have if they fail inspections, really just protection at the end of the day. On top of that, I don't know how much time anyone has spent out there trying to combat a low star review, but if you're spending more than an hour of your time, it's worth more than four or $500. And so if you're going to spend more than one hour of your time trying to combat a low star review, whether it's stressing over it, actually filing you know complaints and trying to get it removed from your listing, whatever it is, it's not worth your time. So inject quality control and build a relationship with your factory. And finally, if you want to have someone do that for you, both you know from either from a design perspective, quality control perspective, a pricing perspective, anything that you want to, you can come visit us at Gemba. Our website is www.gemba.com, G-M-B-A-H.com. You can email us at info at Gemba.com or you can fill out the form there. And for all of your viewers, we'd be happy to give a 10% discount on all pre-production services as a thank you to your audience for listening. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much, Zach. I appreciate that. And we'll have all those links and that email address in the show notes. You can just scroll up on your little app thingy and find all that information right there. So if you want to check it out, Gemba.com. And I, I noticed your website, you have like a little kind of give us your information thing. It's kind of how you get started, right? So yeah, it seems like it's a pretty easy way to get started. And Zach, do you have anything else before you jump off? No, thank you, Andrew. I appreciate the time and hope to see you again soon. All right, guys, this has been the Zoncom podcast. This is with Zach Leonard with Gemba, and we had an awesome conversation. Thanks, guys. Bye.